Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? If you're visiting, good. I love the positive good. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. As you see, we have a tank on stage. It was leaking uh, this weekend. So if it just suddenly breaks and just, yeah, you're in the zone, friends, over here. <laughs> and we'll figure out another way to baptize people. Um, and we get, to, yeah, the splash zone. I like it. We, we get to celebrate this as people step into new life. And, and, and just a note on that. Uh, we, we today get to baptize adults, uh, students, and children. Uh, one of the things I've picked up over the years in church is that sometimes, yes, it's wonderful when we see adults go through this process of life change, but uh, there's also just this joy in, in people at this young age making this decision to follow Jesus. And sometimes the tendency with adults is to think, have they even thought that through? For what reason are they doing that? And, and let me just say that there's one uh, child that today is getting baptized that I'm proud to call a friend, and she's been talking about this for a year. So this is not like just lighthearted processing. This is people that have said, I-, I want to follow Jesus and I want to show publicly that I am following Jesus. And that, friends, is a big, big deal. Uh, yeah, worth a clap. But before we get there, we got some stuff to talk about. His name was Mohammed Sarkwib. And I got the feeling he hated me from the first moment he saw me. I was at a new school figuring out new relationships, new uh, friendships. Uh, I was just a kid. I weighed about 110 pounds, and he was at least 30 or 40 pounds heavier than me. Now, perhaps uh, cute little Alex here (laughs) at 11 11 years old had a tendency to speak more than he should. Perhaps he had a tendency to push some buttons that shouldn't have been pushed. But either way, what I remember of the first few months of this new school was seeing him around a corner and either running in a different direction or doing anything I could to get away from him and sometimes just not being able to and being on the receiving end of his bullying antics. There were ways that this guy made me for the first three months I was in this school made me miserable made me scared, and made me at times fantasize about everything that I would do if I had the nerve to fight back. Gave me moments where I would imagine this moment in a fight where I would lift him above my head and throw him over the top rope, big time wrestling style, where I'd maybe drop an elbow as a follow-up. Like, just made me cycle all the ways that I would like to take revenge upon him. But the bullying and the tormenting continued and continued until one moment, one glorious moment where something inside of me snapped and I said, I've had enough of this. And I remember this moment where I just started swinging punches and was surprised to find he didn't swing back. Sometimes the old adage of bullies are the most scared people, sometimes it's true. And I remember this moment as I hit harder and harder and faster and faster, and then this moment where a teacher walked around the corner. And for whatever reason, she didn't see this moment 
where like Buckner walks back into Shea or like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid like go out to fight the bullies. She saw just two kids fighting and she dragged me off to the principal's office and there I got the customary talking to. But I'm ashamed to say somewhere following that, the mouth that maybe ran too much beforehand started to run even more. That somewhere the tables had turned and sometimes even at 120 pounds, I started talking to him in ways that maybe weren't the ideal. And I remember this moment after saying something particularly cutting to him, I suddenly felt this weight on my back. As Mohammed decided, actually, no, he didn't like that kind of talk either. I remember somehow in the midst of this fight, I ended up on his back, and as he slammed me repeatedly into the wall, I remember this fury and this helplessness that was building up inside me. And when he finally dropped me, I walked towards him and swung a punch, a punch that I'll, I'll say not from hell, from heaven, like this, this monster of a right cross that, that was designed not just to put him down for the count, but potentially to put him down for good. Unfortunately, it missed by at least a foot, or perhaps unfortunately, it missed by at least a foot. But it was this cycle of revenge, of fighting, of a continual pushing up against each other. I'm not sure we ever really forgave each other. I'm not sure we ever got over it. It was this moment of just learning that revenge is perhaps a human problem that 11-year-old Alex was learning about. In case you ever wonder if kids at times resemble parents, I also took this photo to put next to each other, and apparently apples don't fall particularly far from trees. The same experience I had uh, as a child is perhaps one that many of you in this room have had, or you're working through with kids or grandkids. It's perhaps one that you see in your school friends. The writer Eugene Peterson talks about a similar experience to mine. He said, in his own experience, of bullying, that's when it happened. Something totally uncalculated, totally out of character. Something snapped in me. The Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness and I grabbed Garrison, his own Muhammad. To my surprise and to his, I realized that, uh, he realized that I was stronger than he. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good. And I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on, black his eyes, bust his teeth. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood, more cheering. Now the audience was bringing the best out of me. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. <laughs> And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first, was my first convert. I just now feel bad that I never converted Muhammad in the same way. Revenge is a human instinct not just human problem. Muhammad Ali said this, I'm a fighter. I believe in the eye for an eye business. I'm no cheek turner. I got no respect for a man who won't hit back. You kill my dog, you better hide your cat. <laughs> Although many of us would say like, is that really equal? Someone kills my dog, like killing their cat isn't gonna cut it. Like it's just not the same <laughs> thing. Pierre de la Clos says this, revenge is a dish best served cold. William Thackeray Makepeace said, revenge may be wicked, but it's natural. 
It's an instinct inside of us. Something happens to us and we long, we long for those moments of revenge. Revenge is a, is a human problem, I would say, and, and not just a human problem, but it's bigger than just individuals. It's, just, it's bigger than just you and I. It's a worldwide human problem. It's a national problem. It's a struggle that all of us face. The writer Franz Faison, who talks mainly around the ideas of how colonialized nations find liberation, says this. National liberation, national reawakening, restoration of the nation to the people or commonwealth, whatever the name used, whatever the latest expression, decolonization is always a violent event. For one nation to find freedom, he says, it takes violence. And yet most of us are probably aware by now that there's a conversation going on that sees that violence as constantly perpetuating. How many of you at the moment would say, I'm wrestling with all that I see happening in the Middle East? And it's not just the Middle East, it's areas like Sudan, like Myanmar, areas like Kazakhstan. All over the place we see cycles of violence that perpetuate themselves. And just to show how continual this is, even though we are wired at times to think it's just in the moment, it's actually long term. This is, this is a transcript from a British comic show in the 70s. The fictional prime minister is having a conversation with someone in his administration about how to deal with a recent war in Israel and the Middle East. In the midst of that, one of the things that the prime minister has said is, I want to abstain, I don't want to stay involved in this. And the argument goes back and forth. Palestine, they, they, they dropped the first bombs. Well, Israel dropped more bombs and on and on and on. And look at some of the conversation here. Humphrey, I'm talking about what's right and wrong. Sir Humphrey, well don't let the Foreign Office hear you. Well, the Foreign Office might agree to your abstaining on the matter of Israel, so long as you authorize our man there to make a powerful speech attacking Zionism. Hacker, this is the Prime Minister. Surely we should use the debate to promote peace, harmony, and goodwill. Sir Humphrey, well it would be most unusual. The UN is the accepted forum for the expression of international hatred. Of international hatred. Now all of this, put in a comic environment, has its humor to it, and yet it reflects this problem that each of us recognize, I would suggest, in the world around us. That whether we've picked a side or not, cycles of violence perpetuate more cycles of violence, and on and on and on, and no one yet, it seems, has found a solution to that. No one's found a solution to that. Violence becomes a culture in itself. Tony Stark says this, they say the best weapon is the one you don't have to fire. Respectfully, I disagree. I say the best weapon is one you only have to fire once. Revenge is a human worldwide problem. It involves all of us. Now, as we get to the text that we'll get to today, and I'll read it in just a few minutes, what I would say is this. Uh, we plan these texts a long time out. We plan them specifically around religious holidays, around the religious, the liturgical calendar. As I got closer and closer to this week, it suddenly started to hit me that this text also lands on when we celebrate Veterans Day. And what I wanna say as we enter into this is, we're gonna let the text speak for itself. Wherever you sit in different positions, Jesus will have things that might push up against you. The goal today is not to talk about national interest. The goal today is not to talk about how we make decisions as a country because I would suggest very few of those decisions are made or will be made in this room. 
If you participate in that conversation, then my prayer for you is that Jesus speaks to you and guides you and gives you wisdom. But for the most of us that don't engage in those conversations regularly, what we're going to do today is ask Jesus, how are you challenging me personally? Jesus constantly, almost provocatively, uses the singular second person. He speaks to you. He speaks to me. He speaks to you. And he speaks to me. And each one of us, as we take it away, have to say, what will I do with what Jesus teaches, especially around the subject of revenge? Revenge is a human problem. It's a constant existential human problem. Through the law code in Israel, through the Torah, revenge was controlled. When something happened, when something happened to you personally, there was a system in place to decide just exactly how revenge could be undertaken. There's a few passages that will reflect this here, Exodus chapter 21, but if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The control there was that when that came before a judge, the person that had been harmed could not say, well, that person bruised my thigh, I want to chop off their arm. That person couldn't say that I'd been injured in a minor way, now I want to return in a major way. It was a controlled system that allowed peace to be resumed. When we think back to a culture that's so different from ours and that makes it hard at times to understand, recognize that there were things that happened in places a long time ago that could start world or, or nationwide conflicts or area-wide conflicts. The, the famous Trojan War was started because one man stole another man's wife and suddenly multiple nations come into a conflict that were told, at least mythology, mythologically, killed thousands and thousands of people. There's this control that is built into Torah. Here's another uh, passage, Leviticus 24. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution. Whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born, I am the Lord your God. Now this to us might seem kind of archaic, but for its day, it was revolutionary. For its day, it controlled the revenge in a way that was almost unheard of. It provided a system. The fact that it treats a foreigner and a national the same is in itself revolutionary. And final one, Deuteronomy 19. If a malicious witness, now we're talking about someone who's been a witness to a crime or claims to have been, takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false te testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. So this says that if a man comes and says, I was harmed by this other man, I was bruised and I want vengeance, and it, it turns out not to be true, then that false witness is now bruised. If he comes and says, this man killed my husband, killed my wife, killed my family member, then if he lies about that, he has to be killed for that. Again, can seem kind of archaic, but all designed to promote truthfulness and fairness in a system. Something that for those of us that love fairness, we might say, huh, 
I kind of like that. I kind of have some Muhammad Ali in me. I have some moments where I say, yeah, touch my dog and I'll, yeah, cat, whatever. (laughs) Now we get to Jesus. Remember what we're talking about through this Sermon on the Mount. The, the Sermon on the Mount constantly represents itself as a, as a guide to human flourishing, but I would add an extension to that. I, I would suggest that the Sermon on the Mount presents a lifestyle that is only possible with a transformed heart. As we get to what Jesus is teaching, you cannot do this by yourself. It is undoable, it is difficult. It, I would say it's, it's even impossible. There is a saying, Richard Foster says, that virtue is easy, but the maxim is true only to the extent that God's gracious work has taken over our inner spirit and transformed the ingrained habit patterns within our lives. Jesus invites us to a transformed heart, and then he invites us to transformed action. What we're celebrating in baptism is the transformed heart moment, and we constantly are making this movement and being more transformed as we move towards Jesus. A question that I've asked you to ask every week, that I ask myself every, every week is this, uh, what untransformed part of me is this revealing? And today Jesus reveals some untransformed parts of me because get a load of this text. You have heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's pray, because we need to. Jesus, we desperately need your help with this because this is hard words, these are hard words. This is difficult teaching. Would you help us to focus on what you're actually saying, not what we think you're saying? Would you help us to embrace what you are saying, not what we want you to say? Would you help us to take steps in following in the way of Jesus, even when there's parts of that that are difficult beyond measure? Constantly remind us, please, that this is about transformation of heart, not about just a harder law to follow. Amen. Some questions I have when I read this text, and perhaps you have some of the same questions. They are these. Is Jesus wrong? Is Jesus out of his mind? Is Jesus socialist? Just give, take and give whatever you want. Do the atheists have a point? Is a question people have asked about this text. What is Jesus suggesting when he says these things, specific examples, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone asks you to go one mile, go a second mile. If someone asks to borrow from you, give to them without asking in return. How does a society function and take Jesus seriously? This is a challenging and difficult thing that requires some serious processing. It begins, yes, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, truth for a tooth. That's the background law. Jesus constantly is addressing these particular elements of Torah. He's wrestling with what they really mean. And sometimes he's extending them and saying something different. In this case, particularly, he takes something and says, stop doing that. 
do something different. I have a better way for you. When we talk about revenge being a dish served cold, on first reading, we might say, according to Jesus, revenge is a dish best left uneaten. Those glorious moments where you get to take revenge out on someone, you get to fulfill the fantasies of revenge that have perhaps occupied your mind. Jesus says, don't do that. There'll be regret. It won't lead to where you want to. Uh, the language is interesting. Uh, he says, uh, do not resist an evil person. There's a whole bunch of thinking around this particular word resist. One of those elements particularly is this, that the first time resist is used in an English translation is the, the 1601 J King James English version. And the suspicion is that King James has a lot of people that are subjects all over the world and he doesn't want them to fight back. Resist is, is a fairly uncomfortable translation of this a Greek word, antistani. Yes, resist, okay, has some element of it, but it's actually at its core a military term. It actually has a background more in conflict in a courtroom, conflict in a military setting, all of those different applications. So to try and get to the core of it, I gave you some different versions from modern culture that may help. It has the language of oppose face to face, to fight back, to go to war with or against. If you're a fan of the Godfather movies, it's going to the mattresses. It's like that, that moment where you, the, the war becomes serious. Sue the shirt off, and I picked shirt because as you'll see later, that's where Jesus' reference is. That, that language of, oh man, this has got bad, we're gonna lawyer up, and we're gonna take care of this in the courtroom. All of those are implications that you might draw from this word, antistani, which we translate resist. But then he gives specific examples, specific examples that are all locked and loaded in Jesus' particularly, particular society, some of which have examples today. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. I'm gonna ask for someone to help me illustrate this for just a moment. <laughs> and I'm gonna give you the good side. And I'm gonna ask Mark Guilford if he'll come and illustrate this. Let's give him a, no, 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 come on Mark, if you could come up here, that would be great. Let's give him a round of applause. And I, I picked Mark because he's bigger than I am. He's got that, that, that frame. So, so if I am a servant of Mark or I'm a lower person in society, Jesus says here, if someone slaps you, specifically he chooses to say on the right cheek. Not just one cheek, but specifically on the right cheek. Uh, and so if you're right-handed, which 90% of people are, and in, in ancient societies, if you weren't right-handed, you would be trained to be right-handed. How do you slap someone on the right cheek. We'll turn around so we can help them see better. There we go. So I'm going to invite him to, yeah. That was weak. No, no. <laughs> I just want to pretend you're weak. <laughs> and so what's, what's Jesus saying here? There's this moment where someone strikes you on the right cheek and what does it do? It turns your face. And then what is he asking you to do? He's asking you to turn the other cheek, so there's a slap on the right cheek. Let's try that again, same, yeah, yeah, there, oh man, that was better. Uh, and then, then there's this turn, the other cheek, watch the microphone, uh, and he's saying like, yeah, okay, now, now, now hit me not as a servant, so as a master hits a servant, not, not as a adult hits a child. Hit me man to man, hit me as an equal, like ask me to respond to you in kind. That was brilliant, thank you, that's all you had to do. All right, round of applause. You got, to be, you, got, you got to do what many people here might have liked to have done. You got to hit the guy on stage. 
certainly what Mohammed Saq would want it to do. Um, so, so there's this interaction there that Jesus is describing. It has a specific context. Next one, Matthew chapter five, verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Most men in Israel in this day and age would wear two garments. They would have a shirt. There would be more than one of them. It would be underneath. You would change it regularly because you would often sleep in it. You would wear it continuously. It would start to smell. And if you were at all affluent, even just like above the poverty line, you would have two or three or even four of these. And then there's a coat which every Israelite wore. They were often made for them by their mother and the day they became a man. We reference, it's referenced when Jesus is crucified. It says, let's not tear the coat. Let's, let's draw lots to see who gets it. There were provisions in the Old Testament law for this, sh- for this coat never to be taken from an Israelite. You couldn't take it as part of a deal. You couldn't sue them for it. It was designed to be there because it was part of your existence. You would, if you were poor, sleep in this code. It provided warmth. It provided security. They were very expensive to make. Jesus says, I say to you, if someone says, I want your shirt, of which you have many, also offer them your coat as well. Let me ask you a question. If you are standing in a courtroom and someone has to take your shirt off you and you offer them your coat, what are you wearing when they take your coat? Not very much. Not very much. There's an implication here that's difficult, that's challenging. Third one, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. This one maybe is a bit more commonly known amongst people that have been around church. For a while, it's a time of Roman occupation. The Roman army are in town. They've taken over the nation. And there was a rule in place that any, any Roman soldier could take any Israelite, no matter how high status they were, no matter how important they were, they could take a rabbi, they could take a priest, it didn't matter. And they could say to them, we need you to carry something for a mile. That it could take a person that was used to having servants that did work for them, that used to ha- was used to having a significant place in society, and they could turn them temporarily into a porter. They would say, fetch and carry for us. Imagine that as a person who's had your country invaded, now you're fetching and carrying for the army of the nation that has invaded you, potentially killed some of the people that you know that, you, uh, that are part of your family. These are the examples that Jesus gives. And just at the moment when we think that we can exclude all the other things and just go to the things that are perhaps degrading but unusual, things that are rare, Jesus lands his fourth blow and it's well placed because it hits us in our places of finance, our places of wealth, our places of security. Because the fourth one is the most common, certainly today, but even then. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Open your wallets, provide generosity. And just like the others, there's moments where you might say, does this really work? My first overseas mission trip, I went to the Philippines. I was about 19 at the time, and we went out to a place called Cebu Market, one of the biggest indoor markets in the world, a place with lots of poverty, uh, lots of things for sale, lots of kids running around asking for money. We got out of the car, and the first thing that happened to me was about seven or eight cute little kids came around me and said, can we have money, please? And as a 19-year-old, what do you think I did? I got out my wallet and started handing around cash until the guy that was in charge of the trip grabbed me and said, what on earth are you doing 
well, have these kids with us the rest of the day if you keep doing this. And then I read Jesus' teaching, and I say, was he right? Was I right? It's complicated, right? What Jesus asks us to do is difficult. It, it impinges perhaps on our finances. It, it impinges perhaps on our sense of self-respect on how we're instinctively likely to respond when we feel disrespected. As I shared last week, I'm currently training a puppy, and I have moments where the puppy does not listen. Normal thing for a 12-week puppy. And it's incredible how this fluffy, cute little thing can make me feel disrespected when she doesn't listen. And the same is true in almost any human interaction. Our sense of self-respect, our sense of who we are, makes us respond in some of the worst ways. And when the personal injury increases, that sense of desire for revenge increases and increases and increases. And Jesus says in all these different ways, all these different ways that an everyday Israelite would feel very much disrespected, would feel very frustrated, would feel very angry about the state of their nation, would feel very angry about why God wasn't changing the state of their nation. And, and Jesus says to them, when you're in those situations, respond different. I want you to think for a moment about how you respond in those moments. I would suggest just like my story with Mohammed Saqib, those two possible ways. Uh, there's the possibility that you run away, that you flight. As we do when we're in moments of fear, anxiety, the flight system kicks in. We realize someone might be stronger than us. We realize there's danger. And so we run away. And then there's the other possibility, the one perhaps seemingly glorious moment where you start swinging back and that's fight. And perhaps we would say this in society, we tend to admire those that fight and we tend to not admire those that turn to flight. Our response to threat is either fight or flight. And I would suggest Jesus offers a third way. I would say Jesus offers a third way. I wanna share with you a story that we'll unpack a little bit more next week. It's around Martin Luther King Jr. and his dealings with the civil rights movement. There's this moment where he finds himself at this time where he's terribly afraid, where he's just received some threats and he's figuring out how do I respond to these things. He says this, I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. I tried to find my flight strategy. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. Remember, fear is, according to Thomas Aquinas, the contraction of the soul. It's everything he is experiencing right now. It's this moment of, do I run? Do I fight? What do I do with everything that I'm experiencing? A moment that I would guess everyone in this room has faced at some point, and I certainly have faced many a time. And in this moment, when we take it and place it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount teaching, I would suggest Jesus offers the possibility of a third way which Martin Luther King takes, which he chooses. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, but now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I'm at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. 
And this is what he says in this moment where he chooses the pathway of nonviolent resistance, where he chooses to protest without swinging back, where he chooses not to run, but he chooses to do more than fight. He says this, at that moment I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. I was ready to face anything. This is a person that encountered all of the different elements that we're talking about in Jesus' teaching and says, in those moments, I didn't run and I didn't hit back, but I did choose to stand. I did choose to stay. Dale Bruner says this, in the Sermon on the Mount passage, we are called to find creative ways to respond non-violently to social injustices. Just as at the great judgment we'll be asked, did we find creative ways to help the neglected and hurting in our communities? Someone anonymously said this, it's a turn on the phrase, don't just stand there, do something. They said this, don't just do something, stand there. Don't just do something, stand there. Jesus' teaching involves us to stay involved in difficult situations. He doesn't actually give us all the answers. And if what you're looking for here is just a better black and white law, a stricter teaching, I would suggest this isn't actually it. There are always ways that we might look at the things of Jesus that Jesus said and said, no, not in this circumstance. Let me give you a couple of really easy examples. Supposing someone asks you to drive them a mile and then you want to offer them to go a second mile, but you're a doctor who's about to perform heart surgery for a child that needs some kind of transplant. Is the call of God in that moment to go two miles with them? Or is the call of God to do what you've been asked to do to save a life? If someone comes and asks you for money but you've already promised that money to somebody else who has a greater need, is the call of God to simply give what you've been asked to give in that moment? Does anywhere Jesus say give them everything that they want? No, he doesn't say any of those things but he does open our capacity to begin to say yes to things that before we might never have considered saying yes to. There's all of these questions that I have, all of these scenarios that I'm intrigued by in this text, things that may already have occurred to some of your minds. Does this work? Doesn't it just perpetuate injustice? Shouldn't I defend my family? Do I give a murderer a weapon if they ask for a weapon? Should I go without because of generosity? Should I leave important things undone? Isn't it the government's job? Isn't it the church's job? Won't it make me look weak? All of those different scenarios play in my mind as I'm sure they do. And yet, and yet Jesus still says in all of these different ways, find ways to love unusually. Find ways to react in a different way than you might be tempted to react. Do more than run away and do more than hit back, but find a way to step into those things and stay to respond in a different way. I would suggest that uh, the core of this, this is what the teaching is. Jesus does not tell us what we have to do. He shows us what we are free to do. This isn't a better law or a harder law. This is an opportunity to be involved in this world in a redemptive way, which is exactly what Jesus does.
This is real transformation. You can step into these things, and I can step into these things, and when we do the work of God in those situations, we'll be transformative in a way it never is. When we run from what is hard, or or when we fight back because of what has been done to us. The invitation of God is imagine what can be done when people stay, when they find a third way. Romans chapter six, verse three says this. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might walk in the newness of life. What each of these people that are doing baptism today are saying, and what you have said if you've made this same journey, is that I'm invested in Jesus' death. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me is another way that is phrased. As you encounter the teaching of Jesus this week, as he asks you to do hard things, the challenging question for each of us is in our response, is this me? Is this my own struggle? Is this my own sense of being insulted and disrespected? Is this just my aliveness coming back to haunt me? Is this just me wanting revenge for its own sake? Or am I actually asking Jesus, what Jesus would you have me do in this situation? Because I no longer live, but you live in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The invitation of baptism is to a death and then to find a surprising resurrection into new life. And as I said at the beginning, this teaching of Jesus, it cannot be done naturally. It can only be done supernaturally. The writer Dale Bruner says, this life cannot be lived naturally. It might be the only life to live supernaturally. And so now what you get to do and I get to do this week is to go and process all the ways we might like to respond to what Jesus says. And we get to say to him, what would you have me do? In each situation, what would you have me do? That's the invite. As we prepare for baptism, Aaron and the team are gonna lead us in our traditional baptism song, Holy Water. I'd love to invite you to reflect on your own baptism. This moment where you said yes to death and yes to life as well. You found yourselves, perhaps surprisingly, raised to new life, to live the life of Jesus in the world around us. Perhaps you're in a situation of conflict. Perhaps you'd love someone to pray with you. Our prayer team will be around and to the sides. And and if there's this moment where you say, I'm just wrestling, because everything in me wants to run away, and perhaps I'm already fighting back, and you'd love someone to just come alongside you, they'd love to do that for you. We're gonna invite our baptismal candidates to go and get ready for baptism. And then we'll move over to the tank and we'll baptize away. Jesus, thank you for your difficult, challenging teaching that asks something of us. It's not a new law. It's not just a harder teaching to obey. It is a whole different way of thinking altogether. And for each of us that responds and wants to push back on that, Help us to listen to what your voice is. For each of us that desperately finds ourselves in a need of just someone to come alongside us because conflict is brewing and we have no idea what to do. Help us to step out and just accept that offer of prayer. 
for each of the people getting baptized, may you speak to them of new life in this moment. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.